Frankenstein's bar is what it is. Just stitched together from different buildings. Oh, it was yeah, good no, food, I, though. It was oh, yeah, good. Wisconsin, we'll throw a bar anywhere. Like, there's no anywhere. That no rules. Th- Always going to be there's going to be a tavern somewhere. That is one of the things I do love about that state. I do love mm-hmm. I do love visiting Wisconsin because it's like, you know, like you don't like this bar. Go five feet down the road like it's anywhere. Um, but yeah, I was actually going to ask because I think you're the first you're one of the first like Midwesterners I think we've interviewed in a, in a while. Which oh awesome yeah I, I, you actually understand our humor with that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah yeah no, all... born, born and raised in DeKalb Illinois upper mid oh. my whole oh. life yeah <laughs> okay. we had a whole joke on an episode about Ohio I mean we've had multiple <laughs> things but this was like a whole ass rant about Ohio and ended up cutting it because it was just me and Nate well Ohio's <laughs> not part of the Midwest. Like, this is not like it's, I don't know what it is, but it's like more, it's like Pennsylvania that can keep like, like it's more out there. Like to me, the Midwest is like Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Minnesota, and like, um, I'm probably forgetting one, but not even Southern Illinois, like Southern Illinois to me is not even, that's the South. Like that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Ohio is Rust Belt. I I always consider it Rust Belt because it's like. It's the part, like, it's, like, it still had, like, a lot of the industry. It got, like, a lot of the negative effects. Like, still, I always remember my first, my first experience driving into Cleveland was waking up on a bus at, like, 4 o'clock in the, 5 o'clock in the morning, something like that, maybe a little bit later. And I was just crusting over a hill. The first thing I saw were, like, two pillars in the distance just shooting flames into the sky <laughs> and i was like okay i've and i've entered mordor mordor lives in ohio apparently um we're smelting some things around here <laughs> i think there's like one corner it's really funny too because like there's so many like midwestern smelters that are in like missouri mm-hmm. and someone tried to tell me that nebraska was Midwest and it the definitions are yeah. very different. Uh, <laughs> where uh, you live. The, I don't the even one, know where Nebraska is on the map. <laughs> the one I always remember it was actually it was actually a person who was from Nebraska who said this. She was like Indiana, Ohio, and I think there might have been one other state that was included in there where it's like she does she does not consider them part of the Midwest. She considers them part of the Mideast, the but Mideast. you can't use that term because <laughs> of the other connotation. And I was like, mm, I can kind of see that because, you know, you're from Nebraska and it's like way out west where, you know, uh, Omaha exists and the College World Series is held, but there's very little else. Yeah. Um, when when you. When, yeah. Wheat. I think Nebraska's wheat. Uh, corn. Uh, They're also the, corn. Okay. The the, uh, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, I believe. Oh yeah, so, I should yeah, know that. That's the that's the that's the college team, and uh, I believe, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong on this, and if, if I am, someone please correct me. But I think there's a tradition where it's like they actually cover the dome of their main stadium for the University of Nebraska. They cover it in uh, corn. Okay, I will give Nebraska a little bit of a caveat because I feel like that's the one thing that ties Midwesterners together. Yeah, I was gonna say they can be, if they're doing that, they can be Midwest and they can be Midwest. Them, yeah. It's agriculture. Agriculture unites us all. Um, yeah. but... it's looking at a field and being like, is that corn or soy? <laughs> and not knowing. Anybody's <laughs> guess. Uh but shall we get started? Yes. Yeah. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dark Waters, a literary podcast devoted to dark fiction and those who love to read and write it. I'm Nate, here as always with Kirsten. Hello. And our guest for this episode, Scott Mitchell May. 
How you doing? Doing all right. Uh, Scott Mitchell May is a writer living in Madison, Wisconsin. His short fiction has been published in many literary journals, including the Maryland Literary Review, HAD, or HAD, WNS, Maudlin House, Bending Genres, and Rejection Letters. He was the winner of the 2019 UW Madison Writers Institute Poem or Page Competition in the category of Literary Fiction, and his unpublished novel, Bridgeport Nowhere, was shortlisted for the 2022 Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Award. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, his debut novel, Breakneck, or It Happened Once in America, was published by Anxiety Press in late April 2023. He's also the author of the novelette All Burned Down, forthcoming in October 2023 from Emerge Press. And his second novel, Awful People, A Ghost Story, is coming in early 2024 from Death of Print Books. He holds a GED from the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction and a BS in English Literature from Edgewood College. He tweets at S. Mitchell May. Damn, that's a resume. Anything else that's you want to add? Cool. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that about covers it. But it, it's really funny um, how I end, I just sort of ended up with these these publications sort of getting stacked back to back to back this year. And uh, yeah, I, I had a I had an agent for um, I think two and a half years, so I had like a just this backlog of sort of work. And then when um, for various reasons, when that sort of relationship ended. I just decided like, okay, I'm gonna make a very solid plan. I'm gonna start pitching this to indies and I'm gonna pitch this to try to seek uh, other representation. And then I can't stick to a plan. So I just started pitching like three books at once to, <laughs> to indie presses I really kind of dug and they all got picked up. It was it was strange. <laughs> strange an, in a good way. Yeah. An embarrassment, really good an embarrassment way. of luck and riches is what that is. <laughs> Ex exactly, um, exactly. Yep. But I mean, fortune does favor the bold and it turns out she favors you a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we want to talk to you about Breakneck and some of your other works as well. Um, but mm -hmm. we want to ask you a few questions to help our listeners get to know you better. So because this is what we do and this is what we love, what do you normally classify under the header of dark fiction? Why do you love it? What are you specifically looking for when you're looking for a new book in that genre? Yeah. And, you know, I would say I classified, I, you know, I would classify something like, um, you know, as literary as, um, oh, it was on the tip of my tongue. It was the, uh, the, the, the book about, uh, clones from Ishi, Ishiguro. Um, and now I can't, now I can't. Never let me was, go. Never or, let me go. So yeah. I would classify something like never let me go as dark, is dark fiction. And it's, and it's something that just captures like a mood, right. That kind of lulls you in and then very slowly starts to just beat at you with something subtly horrific. That's the stuff I really kind of gravitate towards and really kind of, and really kind of dig. And when we're talking about literature and we're talking about, you know, sort of the, the darker stuff, you know, things like uh, La Morte Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory, which is um, a retelling of the Arthurian cycle uh, that Mallory wrote when he was locked up in, you know, the Tower of London during the War of the Roses, because he was on the wrong side of either the Red Roses or the White Roses, it escapes me. Um, but I consider that dark fiction too, because while it is the Arthurian cycle, it's hyper-violent, but in a very sort of almost pre-McCarthyan McCarthy way, where it's like, and then Sir Galahad rode up and cleaved him from, you know, his shoulder to his uh, pelvis with his axe, and then Casual. he rode off. You know, just like casually violent in that way. Uh, I consider things like, you know, uh, Tom Robbins' Jitterbug Perfume to be dark fiction. It's 
you know, it, it's it's very like kind of twisty and weird and a little sci-fi, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very eclectic. But to me, it's always about more of a feeling than sort of, um, you know, sort of like where it sits on the genre shelf, if, if any of this is making any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Definitely, that's, yeah. That's, that's a lot of things that we kind of we kind of lean towards as well, where it's like it it evokes a certain type of emotion and mm -hmm. it speaks about a certain type of certain type of event, um, or like not maybe event, but like a certain type of uh, occurrence that occurs within like people's lives. Uh, we've uh, like desperation is often a theme that comes out, but then also. Yeah. Um, even just like the attitude of violence where it's like, it depicts violence in like a realistic way. Um, yes. And like, even things like things like the Arthurian cycle, like definitely would qualify for that. <laughs> one of my, one of the parts of it that always fascinates me is like the understanding of just how twisted King Arthur really is. And everyone forgets about that part of it. And they think yeah. like, Oh, King Arthur, like the, the peril of virtue. It's just like he raped his sister. The, the whole cycle begins when Uther Penn, Uther Pendragon has Merlin like magic him into impersonating somebody else so he can steal someone's wife. And then by the time he's like unmagicked and back to himself, that she's just like, oh, hey, you killed my husband and now you impersonated him. But now we're together. It's totally cool. You know, so that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. fine. We're all just cool with it. You know, so yeah, there's there's dark stuff like that. I think you can just you can just find in a lot of just really good fiction. And when I want, I always seem to, to gravitate back towards like criminology or slightly askew, slightly surrealistic things. And like, to me, a good dark scene can be something where no violence happens, but there's just something so casually off about it that it just leaves you with a, a sense of unease or a feeling of unease, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. And I love that, um, that, that feeling of, subtle dread is one of my favorite feelings when reading a book um yeah if I'll... i walk into it with everything's gonna be fine and all the characters <laughs> are just gonna be completely unchanged and everything's gonna work out for the best i uh i'm gonna have a much different view mm. on that book than if <laughs> i walk in being like someone for someone important's probably gonna probably gonna die yep. yeah yeah the, the person I really care about in this story is probably going to suffer a lot. Yeah, um, it's probably going to. That's why I, I'm really like uh, jealous of people who can write, um, write with like series in mind, you know, like, mm -hmm. because for me, it's like, um, it's never occurred to me to try to write something that could, that could spawn like a different book. But also I just like murdering people in my, in my book. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, I just do. And it's like, Oh, this character would be the like in Breakneck. Like, there's a detective, and technically he's like alive at the end. I guess I could write another one, but it's like everyone around him's dead. Like, what are you, what are you gonna do? Like <laughs> that, yeah, that kind of happened with my book, and I don't want to get too into spoiler territory, but I had a couple of people be like, "When's the next one coming out?" And I was like, "What? Did we read the same ending? <laughs> what part of that set this up for future adventures? Like, like who, who do you want appearing in the next book? Like, is anyone is anyone all right at the end? Like, yeah, it'd be a really short sequel. It'd be like, yeah, the world uh, still on fire. Yep, <laughs> the world's still on fire. Stay tuned for uh, so three uh, part three the. World's now unpopulated. There you go. <laughs> you know what? So I, I agree with that, though, because, like, I think that there is such a talent of 
hooking just enough, like having enough character development, having enough violence, having enough, like, I know that these are like, whatever, just like, you know, just give me all the trauma, just do it all. But like, you know, there's enough darkness there that it affects your characters and having that in mind as you keep going. So I think um, Rob Parker just released the third book of the 30 Miles trilogy. And I don't know if either one of you have read that, but the the things that happened in book one got worse in book two. And it was definitely a continuation to the point where the third one, I'm like, I don't know how, like all of these people need years of therapy, but tell me how it ends. I need to know, but also make them suffer just a little bit more. Like, you know, it's fine. (laughs) And there is something so interesting about, about that when something hits you in a truly dark way, right? Like it really affects you in that way. And one of the last things, one of the last movies I watched that did this was um, Fire Walk With Me uh, by David Lynch. And it's like the ending of that movie is just so absolutely brutal. And like the whole time it's building up, you're watching these wild things happen, but it's all in the context of like, you think you know the end because it's Laura Palmer. She's She is going to die. Like, you know that. That's where you're going. And it's just, it just turns up the temperature and turns up the temperature to the point where then by the end, when they're saying some of the last lines in that and the culmination's happening, it, it is it is so disturbing that you're like, how did you trick me into being disturbed by a story I already knew the ending to, you know? Yeah. You know yeah. what? Um, Hades Town, the musical, did that to me too, which <laughs> I understand is like a musical, but a little, so it's a little bit off. But if for anyone who doesn't know, it's a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice. Everyone probably knows Orpheus and Eurydice does not end happily. But you get to the last song and you get to the point, and I was definitely just like squeezing my armrest, <laughs> being like, God damn it! God damn it! <laughs> Maybe it feels over a story that I know that I've known since elementary school, just like pouting in my seat, being like, "How dare you do this to me?" Maybe I should never watch this musical because Orpheus and Eurydice is one of my favorite myths. God, um, it broke my heart. I will always go That's so an bad. achievement. It um, really, yeah. It was so funny. I was with my former roommate, and she saw me. And she was like, is that how you express emotion? It's like, <laughs> you just like break things. I was like, yeah, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Moving back to the question, because this has been all, this has been great. Um, We love dark fiction, obviously, as we have just been discussing. But on the other hand, what was the last book you read, worked on, are working on that left you with positive, hopeful, or somewhat optimistic feelings about the world? Okay, this is I, I, I and I listened to the a couple episodes of the podcast and I was like, I the, an answer came to me like right away as I was listening. I was like, if I get that question, I know an answer. And this is gonna make no sense to to it, it, at first, but Fuckboy by Sean Thor Conroe. And this was like a literary book that came out oh 2022, uh maybe hardcover, um, sort of in, in sort of the alt-lit scene, I guess, there was a big, there's sort of a beef about it uh, where people thought Sean stole another fiercely independent writer's sort of style and thing. But what made me hopeful about the book was, well, A, it was a well-written book. Um, the reviews on it were were pretty all right. And most of the consensus seemed to be this book is better than it had any right to be, I guess. <laughs> but when I read it, I, it it was written in a very idiosyncratic style that sort of kept me wanting to go and kept me wanting to read. So 
I I did actually enjoy reading reading Fuckboy by Sean Thor Conroe and, and thought it was a really uh, well written book. But part of what got people so upset about it was this dude apparently got paid like decent six figure advance for this book, right? Like north of two hundred thousand, something like that. And the story was like he had it was supposed to come out on uh, a really well known indie, and then that the sort of leader of that indie died and. But what brought me hopeful about the world is like, man, people are still paying for weird experimental literary, like actual publishing houses are paying this kind of money for actual weird experimental literary fiction. And whatever else drama about the whole thing aside, like that to me, to, that to me was like, if you can get money writing weird experimental literary fiction, that leaves me hopeful in this world, <laughs> especially so really in 2023. The Yes, it wasn't really the book that was hopeful. It wasn't that the yeah. content was hopeful. It was the it was fact like the, that the like book the whole, existed. Exactly, hopeful. like the whole package on the thing. I was just like, all right, the world still makes a little bit of sense where something truly bizarre and weird can happen, which leads to like this guy making a quarter million dollars. Awesome. I love I <laughs> love that yeah, so much. That's pretty great. Yeah, because so often so often there are things and to be about, honest, to be again, I did really like the book. Yeah, no, I like yeah. I understand. And actually like I read the description on Amazon. I'm like, I'm kind of intrigued. Um, but the, but I'm glad that like its existence gives you hope because of like all the backstory behind it, because there's so often like things in this world where it's just kind of like your existence robs me of joy and happiness and hope. Like there, there are individuals I've met in my life where I'm just kind of like, please tell me you made a conscious choice to be as you are, because if God made you this way, this implies that God might not be a just creator um, <laughs> or like an actual good thing. And yeah, yeah. So the fact that something like this exists and like brings you joy in that scale is, is a great thing. Like I, I very much appreciate that. And I really actually do kind of want to check it out just because like it sounds interesting. Um I, I love experimental, like, I don't know, I enjoy examinations of, like, what it means to be a guy and be a man and, like, all that things, and also, like, things that are weird and experimental, like, one of my favorite books of poetry that I found, actually, recently, um, <clears throat> or rediscovered recently, something called Saturday Night Sage, mm -hmm. um, and I cannot remember who the author is, I know his name is Lukas, uh, L-U-K-A-C-S, um, that's his first name. I cannot remember his last name, but it's a collection of poetry that's inspired by uh, mysticism and menial labor is the term. So it has like a lot of allusions to like Buddhist, like Buddhist ceremonies and Catholicism and these different sorts of saints and sages while at the exact same time referencing what it's like to be a blue collar worker in America. And I think one of my favorite lines out of it is um, you're going to need that Wisconsin work ethic more than you're going to need that bachelor's degree. <laughs> and I was just like, yes. Um, but also he had a he had this poem on there that I cannot remember what it is called, but I remember the last line is uh, it's jazz for the mind, blues for the soul, billowing out the storm drains with no self-control. And like just that even like the cadence of that line is yeah. something that just like carries me. It's like I oh, man, like just like everything is awesome now because like you got things like this in the world. Um, so Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a huge cadence guy. I, I like I, I like when you're reading or writing and you feel like you're just it just gets good to you, you know, and you're just like, oh yeah, I, I see the musicality here. I can just kind of feel it in my bones. And when you read something that truly hits you that way, it's just there's nothing else really like it, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and particularly when it's like, because like that's such a hard thing to nail. Like nailing, like sentence structure is one thing, but like when you can get the structure, the rhythm, and you can hit the meaning all at the exact same time, or better yet, when you interlace them, like that is like hard, hard mm-hmm. to do. And when people can do it in poetry, I'm like insanely jealous because I I have like I have no sense of rhythm. Uh, mm-hmm. I am. I am white as can be uh, when it comes to like rhythm and poetry, uh, but it's really enjoyable when you can, when you can find it and when you can see it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. So moving on a little bit, uh, let's talk about your past. Uh, can you recall what was the first story you had published and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, no, the first story I ever had published uh, was a story called the idea of dogs. Uh, and it was published by Storgi Literary Magazine out of the UK. And um, I would been I'd been writing novels sort of just by myself uh, and then trying to pitch them to agents, like the first couple of them. But like with the idea of like these, I don't like not I don't I think these are terrible novels, but more like, yeah, no, I can see the progression. I can see it getting better, but I'm going to need some practice pitching to agents. So I might as well pitch because like I just had in my mind like some New York City agent is not going to remember four years down the line when I pitched them something else that oh he pitched me this terrible book (laughs) you know five years ago whatever it is but I was at the UW Writers Convention where I I won the that prize thing and um and I was pitching an agent and he basically said to me and this was 2019 he goes well I like to see some short stories on resumes because uh it shows you can condense what you do and sort of uh, get get somebody else to sign off on it. And so that summer, I was just like, okay, I guess I'm gonna write some short stories now. And I wrote the idea of dogs and a few others. And uh, yeah, it got pitched and sort of what inspired me to write that, uh, that short story. And I was really proud that that was the one I got published first, because the movement of it, it goes from third to second to first in these three separate vignettes. And it also sort of moves from literary movement uh, from like the minimalist um, sort of uh, Hemingway short stunted declarative sentences through sort of that second person postmodern uh, hyper realism kind of deal, uh, then into uh, sort of the first person um, sort of Brett Eastern Ellisy cold disaffected um, disaffected descriptions of like a violent bad person, right? And the whole conceit of this, the, the movements was that we are seeing sort of different definitions of masculinity as we go on. So we're seeing like the stoicism and what that leads to. Then we're seeing the sort of uh, thing that cropped up in the 60s and 70s of like the, um, you know, the Hunter S. Thompson sort of rebellious bad boy kind of masculinity where there you can get value from like, you know, just being sort of reckless and careless. And then we're seeing the other, one of the other depictions of masculinity we've been getting sort of since the 80s on, which is this sort of um, the the male as violent, right? Um, without really giving the violence that much, that much thought. And in each one of the vignettes, you sort of see where that ends up with each of these protagonists and where they end up uh, by the end of their, you know, 700 words that I gave them. And so it was like, all this was going on in my head. Now, whether or not anyone thought that when they were reading it is another thing, but I was always, I'll always remember that as my first publication, just because I had given it so much thought beforehand that it didn't take very much to write it. Hmm. All right. All right. That's, that's really interesting. So that's a really good vote of confidence that you can give like a, the weird thing away first. 
We were like, yeah, yeah sure. We like this. Awesome. <laughs> You're like, great. Everything else from here is gravy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you can take the weird shit, then we're like, we're in business. Um, but so, you, yeah. yeah. Talk to us a little bit about your writing habits. So you mentioned before that you like, you have a plan. She says in air quotes that our listening audience won't see. Um, but is there anything that you try or need to do before you begin writing or while you're working that enables you to keep focused? Oh yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like I, when I am writing and I'm in the middle of something and it's all going really well, I'm up at four fifty, and I'm in my, and I, I, I literally just throw on the robe, go downstairs, throw some instant coffee in a cup. So I'm not like making a bunch of noise and just like cold tap water, shake it up and just go sit down. And then from like four fifty to like six, usually it's like 70 minutes. I just write. And I, and that's about as, as much attention as I can give it because I, you know, I, I fairly intense ADHD. And so like, I just, um, I just, when I start going beyond that, it just, it's not productive, but because I kept the rigidity of it from basically 2014 to this year, you know, it started where I could do 300 words in that 70 minutes and it was like 600 words. And then, you know, now when I do it, it's like, I can get up to 13, 1400 words in that seven in that 70 minutes and i i can't plot i can't um i can't overly you know plan out something even as big as like a novel like breakneck um because it just i'll lose interest it's like i've already done the writing work or i've already done the fun part you know what i mean so to me creation in the moment is what keeps me interested enough in the work to continue doing it if, yeah. if, if that makes sense because if if i'm not having fun and i'm not then I'm not interested. And if I'm not interested, then I can't pay attention. I can't, I can't will myself to write when I'm not sort of feeling that engagement with it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely makes sense. It's been actually, it's been kind of interesting just in like when we do like these kind of clumps of author interviews for like our seasons or whatever. Um, we've had so many times where it's just been like people who are like, yeah, I plot. Yeah, I plot. Yeah, I plot. I wake up at 5am. I wake up at 5am. And I'm just there being like, I, you're speaking Russian to me right now. Like <laughs> I don't get it. Um, but I think that there is like definitely different mentalities to it. And I, I'm with you. I cannot, I will have like a idea for the beginning. I will vaguely know the end. Yeah. And the middle is a mystery to me and the characters. And we just go through it together. It, it, yeah, exactly. I, with Breakneck, like I knew I wanted to write something noirish. I knew I wanted, uh, I, I, I knew I wanted my, my version of the Chinatown ending, right? Where like you just have the, you know, sort of the horrific irony of the end of Chinatown and sort of just the futility around all of the effort that went to get you to that one spot where then it's just like, forget it. It's Chinatown. It, it, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like I knew yeah. I wanted something like that. I knew I wanted something sort of vaguely serial killery and I knew I wanted something highly satirical and highly absurd, but that's all, I, that's all I knew. And then like the first thing I wrote was like year 20, 30, so I think it was like year 2032, Juarez, Mexico. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what this has to do with anything, but all right, let's go, you know? <laughs> I love we'll it. get into this later, but I love that the first couple of pages too are, they're a little bit confusing. There's some code names, there's mystery. You're immediately like, I don't know what's fucking happening. I don't think these guys know what's fucking happening. Let's figure it out. Okay, cool. 
that's yeah, actually yeah. the and, best part. <laughs> yeah, and that as and it's just the stuff I gravitate to, you know, like even if you're going to try to write in in sort of a genre and I consider Breakneck, um, I consider it a horror novel. I consider it a, a hard boiled detective noir. I consider it well within those genres. Um, but you the, with the stuff I've always like that's just grabbed me as a reader was always like the intensely weird postmodernist kind of stuff like you know, of course, like the Vonnegut's and the DeLillo's and the Barth's and, and those guys. And and it, and it was always the same thing to me, because in those novels, they are doing dark stuff and they are doing funny stuff and they are doing absurd stuff. And they are just they are playing in genre in a way that I don't think, you know, sort of people who who, you know, tie their cart to, to the horse of like stodgy literary definition want to want to kind of admit to, you know. You meant you're, I think, my first guest that's actually mentioned Don DeLillo, and I'm so happy. I am so happy. <laughs> oh, man. I, I've been going just, like, I've been, uh, Don DeLillo, like, I have these inflection points that just break my brain, where it's like, now I just can't think of uh, something that, like, writing or whatever the same, like, and it just gets incorporated into, like, now you have to shift to a new paradigm, and, like, you know, White Noise and Libra sort of did that for me, and then, of course, Underworld. And yeah, like, I don't think you get a better American writer than than Don DeLillo. Just I have not read a bad, bad DeLillo book at this point. And I, and I like the silence. Like, I don't I don't give a fuck. Give me a 60 page Don DeLillo long short story and I will pay novel prices for it. I do not care. <laughs> I just picked up at a used bookstore, The Angel Esmeralda and Other Stories and The Falling Man. And my oh, first nice. tattoo is inspired by the body artist. <laughs> Very so. cool very cool uh, i love him so much but he's also like he's weird he writes yeah. weird it is weird it's not we because we did a episode on cosmopolis and it's just it's not how people talk mm -hmm. it's not really how people interact with each other it reminds me a little bit of like did you ever watch house yeah yes his yes. writing reminds me of House in the sense that, like, I don't go to my doctor and have a conversation about my doctor's interpersonal relationships. Like, I don't. No one does that. Right. No. You don't, like, just start having these philosophical debates about this is how I feel about death and morality when you're, like, talking about cancer. And DeLillo is just like, like, people are just like poetry it's literally just giving lyrics to each other all the time and it just anyway i love he's him. such a good writer that it never even like really breaks aversion though you're just like fully no. you're in don delillo's world where people are just like seven ticks smarter yeah it's it's the thing i do love about that is that because it's it's almost like this it's almost like this cognitive awareness that like people don't talk like this it makes the way we do talk seem even more uh even more jarring like it's even mm -hmm. more jarring where it's just kind of like yeah like this is just not how people communicate but maybe it should be <laughs> maybe they could yeah maybe um yeah no i get that like i will talk about him forever so we have to move on <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say like anthony burgess is also a good one if you enjoy like the oh, yeah. the weird burgess, twisted yeah. kind of funny yeah a clockwork orange i the the moment where I realized maybe I needed therapy um, was after reading A Clockwork Orange, and I read chapter two, and I caught myself kind of like chuckling or smiling at it, and then I went back and read it again, and I was like, I am a monster. I am an absolute monster. Uh, 
Yeah, that book that's... is just so fascinating because it's literally you need one of those like I don't know when I was in like eighth ninth grade right we would have the Shakespeare plays that were like the Shakespearean language and then a translation yeah, yeah. it was like Juliet the the sun and the moon and the blah 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 blah, blah. and on the side like Romeo's hot right like that kind of thing <laughs> I feel like you Burgess somehow within this very tiny novella created a language sci-fi authors would aspire to with no explanation no yeah. like just figure it out you fuckwads just so, like go for it so and, and that's and that's the other thing i love authors that just throw you into the deep end you know and, yeah. and here's the thing and i think and this is a total tangential point but we love those we love those yeah. <laughs> the thing that i've been finding sort of that i that i bristle at now in in, in some fiction is where they will give you a clearly distasteful person, like a clearly distasteful almost side character, and they'll have the main character then sort of internally narrativize how they find the distasteful person distasteful. And it's sort of like one of those things where it's like are, you're giving yourself the insurance of not having your work misinterpreted that you, the author, actually believe this distasteful thing this distasteful person is saying. And to me... It, it, you're just then questioning the intelligence of the reader. You know what I mean? Like we are all supposed to be grown up enough to know if you present me with a distasteful person, you do not then need to tell me that you find that person distasteful. Do, do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I love writers who just give me the credit of like throwing me into the deep end of their work and saying, trust me, by the end of it, you'll have some understanding of what's happening. In the realm of certain satirists, like I do enjoy when they spell out a little bit more yeah. how distasteful the person is, because at that point, then it's like they they get to kind of play a little bit like mm -hmm. the, like some of my favorite satirists, like they can sum up a character in a line. And one of my favorite ones, it was actually just I was I haven't finished it yet because I've got sidetracked. But uh, Evelyn Waugh, the guy who wrote Brideshead Revisit, he also did a book called uh, Put Out More Flags, which is a World War II satire of like the upper crust of English society. So fodder there for days. Um, but at one point he was describing some like one of the less tasteful characters. And he said something along the lines of like, he kept his sense of honor as one might keep an ex an expensive pet <laughs> and or an exotic pet is what that was. And like the way, because in like those moments you get to skewer the society, you're skewering it just a mm -hmm. little bit better, a little bit harder um and to just like kind of needle at like whatever it is you're trying to get at and so like i do enjoy it in those moments but in, like all the other instances where you're just narrativizing why this person is distasteful like i agree with you it's like it seems kind of unnecessary well and you wanted yeah. to hit the reader that you know they're discovering their distaste for this person in internally you know what yeah. i mean you're invoking that feeling in them and that and 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 you're right into the point where it's like yeah it needs to serve the character it needs to serve the the narrative it needs to serve the story but it always it always takes me just right out of it when then someone from the side goes oh and by the way that's the bad guy <laughs> ah yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I, unless you're in scrubs but to that point i would also yes. say the line he kept his honor like he might keep an exotic pet is so clever and open to interpretation and like mm -hmm. how i view that is going to be different than may maybe how you view that and it's still it paints a picture without hitting you with a frying pan being like he's an asshole <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you're right it's it's rife for uh for satire yeah exactly um but speaking of uh speaking of repertoires and other genres uh if you could expand up your repertoire beyond what you've already done what type of genre would you want to work in example could be poetry plays graphic novels and why that genre i would work in comic strips like just the like I used to love getting the paper and you flip and just I you'd read the comic strips and the really good ones were always super like they're really clever or funny. But it's just like, you know, when I write I, I write in sort of a maximalist style, you know, I, and and my work tends to go long. I really have to like if I want to publish short stories in, in online magazines, like I have to sometimes I'll take like, okay, here's the chunk of like the seven hundred to 1500 words out of this longer thing I, I enjoy so if I could bring my if I could if I could get as sharp as some of those uh, those people are where you got like three frames to make me laugh <laughs> that that to me I'm very jealous jealous of that like it takes a real skill to have a like to set up a scenario and then hit a punch sort of that quickly plus you get to kind of be an artist like you get to kind of draw I can't do that so mine would just be stick figures <laughs> As someone who has is currently in the process of trying to cut 80 words from a 7,000 word story and has somehow added in 30 instead, um, I feel that. <laughs> and also, um, uh, it, like it, to the stick figure thing, right? They're cyanide and happiness. Yeah. That's, there's, that's there's, not there's, artistic ability, right? Like, there's things for that, but there's I there's XKCD. Yeah. Like, XKCD is always like my stand, to, my my standby for like literal stick figures. Yeah, literal yeah. stick figures with fantastic commentary. Um, oh god. Yeah, but then like also on the on the comic strip note, it's that I feel like there's always like so much more backstory that's not like being like put into those comics, and yeah, it's but it just speaks to like the level of skill you have to have to be able to condense it because my favorite example my favorite example of this is like I remember reading the Boondocks comic strips yeah in like the Chicago Tribune and then I I grew up and I saw there was a Boondocks show like an, a half like multiple seasons of a half hour long show I was just like that person had a lot more they wanted to do that they just couldn't throw into the they strip just, and just yeah. couldn't do it just yeah. couldn't do it God. I was I, I mean I grew up on Calvin and Hobbes Right. Like I had so oh, many yeah. of those books. I still have the complete collection. And like I that was one of my favorite things of storytelling was because you had it like it wasn't always present, but you knew just like even if you read like a couple of weeks in a row, you knew what that was. And the magic of having this little boy and this tiger go on adventures and then everyone else seeing it as the stuffed animal mm -hmm. but knowing those philosophical chats that they were having i was just like you did this in a comic strip like how dare you like what yeah. are you doing to me and i mean i'm from even like when i was a kid i used to love garfield man that cat hates yeah. mondays he loves lasagna <laughs> we are getting down today with some garfield comic strip <laughs> books it's gonna be awesome i i remember finding uh pearls before swine i think is what that is um uh, Stephen Pestish, I think is or Pastish uh is the guy who did it. But he actually did a collab with Bill Waterston from Calvin and Hobbes. And like they were phenomenal, phenomenal, like absolutely hilarious comics. Like I think I think at one point it was like one of them was uh you know Stevens hitting on a hitting on a girl at a bar and 
It's like, oh, what do you do for a living? He's like, I write comic strips. It's like any I may have ever heard of, and he's he just gets nervous. Says, have you ever heard of Calvin and Hobbes? And the very next, <laughs> the very next panel is him like in bed with her, and he was like, that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, back, back to back to the original question about like what what is dark what is dark lit and what makes it so good that is an exceptionally dark joke but it's so hilarious and it's just like <laughs> you like, step back and you're just like oh i see what you did there oh yeah you're funny no. and that was so wrong <laughs> he's he's great for setting up those one-liners he he has a he has an endless stream of ones where it's just like it's like a four four panel setup to like a massive uh, multi-word pun. And then it will end up with one of his characters threatening him or insulting him or doing whatever. Like and one of my favorite ones is like after like the pun gets delivered, one of his characters just goes, you're the reason newspapers are failing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I love this. I love this so much. <laughs> well, one of my favorite uh, person who's working in comics and it was um, it was more of comic books, but uh, you're familiar with Invader Zim. It was like oh, a yeah. oh yeah oh yeah. So Johannes Vas- uh, Vasquez, he had a comic book before that called Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, and Johnny the Homicidal Maniac is sort of that Invader Zim style, but the whole cons- it's like the gothiest comic book ever produced. It's like <laughs> mid nineties to early two thousands, like the gothiest comic book ever. Like, there was a character in that comic book called Nail Bunny. And it was just like a stuffed bunny nailed to a wall that Johnny the Homicidal Maniac consults about moral issues. Like, (laughs) like like, this is what I love about that that sort of medium is because like you can have these darkly hilarious things happen in in, in comics. So yeah, yeah. The um, I I rediscovered how much I enjoyed Invader Zim after I found out that the guy who voices the guy who voices Zim is a voice actor now in a YouTube series, which shows again, like how just independent, like cartoon making has gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are several YouTube series that are like professionally animated and crowdfunded that are really, really phenomenal. But one of the, but the guy who voices Zim, I think Brandon Rogers is his name. Um, he voices a character in that show. And that show is called hell of a boss, which <laughs> is about a bunch of demons in hell who do like, hit services on earth uh and it's dark it's funny it's hilarious and it's absolutely like not safe like not safe for work not not good for kids because just like the jokes in general um but like it switches from like very hilarious moments of like wow this is just like madcap violence to exploring deep deep amounts of distrust and trauma in demons so you know yeah you know whatever but it's it's like it explores like relationship issues as well and i'm just kind of like this is too good to just be on youtube but it could never exist on any other platform well and that's and that's the thing i think that um the literary world has had a tougher time than other mediums sort of accepting which is the recalibration of what it means to be successful in a post-digital age you know uh what i mean yeah so like you'll have People who are really embracing, like you said, independent cartoons on YouTube, podcasting, just doing it yourself and putting it out there. And I think when you talk about literary works or or you talk about, you know, writing a novel, you get it stuck in your head, this very romantic thing. Some agent's going to fall in love with this and so is the publisher. And I'm going to have that experience that I spent my, you know, my life reading about other authors having. And I just, I just think that 
particular experience in this particular medium, it doesn't exist in the way it used to. And I think people are just having a really hard time in the literary world, just fully embracing making that switch of being like, you, you know, what success to me is going to mean is finding independent publishers who work as collaborators with me on on my text and I'm not going to have to go into my pocket to self-publish or they're not going to go into my pocket. We're all just going to go and make this art together and what it sells, it sells, what it doesn't, it doesn't. And if no one ever reads it, I have to be very cool with just knowing like, you know what, I put it out there and I, I worked my hardest on it and somebody else agreed with it and they published it, you know? Yeah. There was a, so when I was querying for my book, my I would have people tell me like, oh, you know, this one guy, he like just submitted, he like didn't even send a letter. It was just read this or not and ended up with a $100,000 deal. <laughs> and I'm like, what? in 1982, like, what yeah. are you talking about? Right. Like, and it would just be like all these success stories from like famous writers from like years and years and years past. And one of the most wonderfully honest things I think I ever saw was the afterword of Fight Club. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, Chuck Palahniuk saying, I got this for a, this was back in the like the 90s, I think. And he was like, I had a 10, and it was from a traditional publisher, right? but he was like, I got a $10,000 advance, which mm -hmm. at the time was fuck off money. Like we don't actually want to take it, but we'll, yeah. we'll take it for this pitiful amount somebody's badgered us into doing this someone's bad yeah and it's basically like no one would think that their work is only worth ten thousand dollars through that kind of thing and he took it and now mm -hmm. and he was like i just wanted someone to take my book and i thought that was beautifully honest of this guy just being like no one wanted it they at that point they paid me what was pennies and which I'm sure to like, I know a bunch of indie people, right? Who like, if they heard $10,000 for their book deal through the thing would be like, yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> in this economy, give me two, give me 5,000. I don't care. Yeah, but, but in the eighties and nineties and stuff, I mean, yeah, 10,000 was a low advance from if you're yeah. going, if you're going for a, if you're getting picked up by a major publisher, it was a low advance. Yeah. And now like all those, all of this has changed. Right. And mm -hmm. it's just really it's just been really interesting to think about but on that subject of success great segue thank you for setting us up for that um so you i mean obviously you've just been like kind of it, it seems like just in the past couple of years you kind of got your foot in the door and started really like publishing things and you've already gotten award nominations and like finalists and you have uh breaknet coming out you or just came out you have all burned down um, awful people. So clearly on track for more success. Um, and as you're working, looking at the literary world and your influences and continue to gain notoriety, who would you want your work to be compared to? Oh, yeah, that's a that's always going to be a tough one. Like, of course, like I like. I have the authors I'm, I'm like a huge fan of, you know what I mean? And they and they do tend to be like the, you, you know, like I said, the Vonnegut's and the DeLillo's and and um, and, the, and, and those guys, but it feels so weird to be like, I would love someone to be like, that's the next Dondola, because I just know how absurd that is. You know what I mean? So yeah. It's like, I've always, like, for me, I wear, I, I, I think wearing your influence, uh, I know there's a lot of writers who try to hide sort of the, the influence and, and, and that, but I see writers like Don DeLillo and I see writers like, um, John Barth is just another one of my personal favorites because he's an insane person, like an absolutely insane person. And he just happened to be publishing 
in a time where you could write like a book like Giles Goat Boy, which is just a 900 page weird metafictional book and someone in a major publishing house would actually publish it. And then you're like a professor at John Hopkins and you have a cool life. Um, but I, I, I love wearing my influences of those guys like on my sleeve, because when you aim at that sort of thing, you're, I'm not going to get there. They are just miles ahead, better writers than I am. But if I, but if I take aim at something like that, then I find I, I will write something I find exceptional or acceptably amusing to myself. <laughs> and then, and then that, that makes me happy, I guess that I'm, that I'm, that I'm not trying to work in their, in their world, but I'm keeping it in the back of my mind, I guess. Yeah. And I think that there is something to be said too, about like Don DeLillo just didn't wake up at no. the age of 20 something and just crap out Cosmopolis, right? Like that just wasn't, that wasn't like a one day and that happened type of thing. And I think every writer grows and has things to aspire to and like want, and I think all the best writers just want to keep improving. Right. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything as she says, selfishly, self-convincingly, I don't think there's anything wrong with having lofty goals for yourself in the essence of you have to keep making those goals like keep those goals like just out of reach enough that it keeps you working. Yeah, I always I, I, like I always say you want to aim. Yeah, you don't want to ever aim for like an accomplishment. You always want to aim for like, you know, to focus on your style. I guess focus, you know, focus on what makes you the what what gets you out of bed to write in the morning, and you'll never really go wrong for that because you'll always be entertained. I guess. Yeah, and like your voice, right, and finding your voice. Yeah. Yeah, and I, the other thing I love about that is that it's like again, it's because because it's a it's a very kind of like what you mentioned before is uh, in terms of like people adjusting to the new definition of success. It's like it's something that you got to define for yourself, mm -hmm. and even when you're like setting these high goals, it's like you're still doing it with the understanding of like I'm not gonna get there not exactly. Getting there, yeah, yeah, but I will I will find something that will satisfy who I am and the way that I write the way i tell stories and that in of itself is like you're halfway to solving the problem of charlie parker uh charlie parker once said like i spent half my life trying to figure out how to play like myself uh <laughs> he was always trying to play like dizzy gillespie or uh one of the i think it was charlie bird as well and it was just kind of like no it's like you got to learn how to play like who you are yeah. and that that is top notch i love that um but Speaking of your voice and speaking of the way you tell stories, you have a little sample of uh, Breakneck for us? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Brought my, my handy copy right, right here. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I do like the cover. It gives me um, Baby Driver vibes. Nice. Yeah. No, uh, Cody from Anxiety Press did the cover. Uh, he did it? he did yeah he just did a, a bang up job with that oh i love that that's yeah that, that is slick yeah and i wanted it very noir i wanted it i wanted to really get that Definitely. the impression like you are going to be reading a, a messed up absurd noir here yeah definitely get that vibe yes <laughs> uh, yeah so the there's not much you need to know uh, i guess about the because of the, the story's uh non-linear <laughs> so it's, it's kind of hard to be like oh yeah then this is right before that happens uh so fantastic the, the, yeah it. the main the main narrative of the story happens in 2036 um 
but it bounces around in years a lot. So you're introduced to this character, um, CIA agent Dwight Markline in the very first section of the very first chapter, I think, uh, like towards the end of that. And he goes by the name of Codename Toolbox as well. Um, and sort of that's in the year of 2032 or something like that. And uh, so this is a little bit further on in the book, um, but this is Agent Markline in the year 2019, if any of that makes any sense at all but so this is sort of makes perfect sense yeah so this would be like the first impression of a mark line if it went in the proper place in the book i guess uh langley virginia apartment of dwight mark line the pre-dawn dark of the room was lit only by the idiosyncratic dragging from a cigarette in long harsh and loud pulls that resulted in a truly uneven burn marred with runners marred marred with runners and producing a long gray ash that fell to the hardwood beneath. Agent Dwight Markline's high gloss black, uh, fell to the hardwood beneath Agent Markline's high gloss black leather dress shoes. The faint sound of breathing, even and steady, came to him from across the room at regular inter intervals that led him to know she hadn't quite died yet. She'd been about the business of dying for far too long. In and out, in and out, her non-labored breaths came across the room from the hospital bed he'd purchased and had brought to his efficiency apartment five months ago. Her arms and legs were, were strapped in tight for her own safety. Though she moved infrequently, she moved involuntarily, and Agent Dwight Markline couldn't risk another rollout. He stubbed his cigarette in the ashtray on the small wooden end table next to the hard chair in which he sat staring at her. Staring at her. His concentration on her on her never broke while he did this, and it didn't break when he lit another Dunhill, letting the diamond green light strike anywhere safety match, burn its uh, burn away its phosphorus sulfide and catch the wood beneath. He dragged hard on the cigarette and used his thumb and middle finger to flick the match at the hospital bed, where it landed neatly in the concavity between uh, in the concavity of the blankets between the woman's legs. She made no sound besides the careful and even breathing of her comatose sleep. The sun was breaking over the horizon to the east of Agent Dwight Markline's cramped apartment. In a matter of minutes, it, it'd be threatening his darkened room and breaching his curtainless eastern-facing window. He'd asked the large man who delivered the hospital bed to set it up in the direct, sun, uh, the direct sight line of the, that eastern-facing window, and the man had commented on how nice Dwight was to make sure his mama had sunshine and all. There was a sheer curtain on the window at the time, which diffused the light into a pale pink luminescence in the room. The curtain had come down after the large man left, and Agent Dwight Markline said, uppity asshole, for no reason other than he wanted to say that those words aloud. The light, the light, bright and mean, crested the eastern-facing window sill and partially lit up, the, lit up the room and the woman's covered feet. Agent Dwight Markline got up from his chair, stubbed his cigarette in the tray, and walked over to the hospital bed. The white blanket covering the woman had five burnt out diamond green light strike anywhere safety matches spread about its surface and Dwight picked them each up and deposited them in the trash can next to the bed where they fell in with many more besides. The white blanket was littered with little brown scorch marks, dozens of them, but none higher than the belly of the woman and no burn marks on the flesh of the woman either, just the white blanket. Agent Dwight Markline watched as the sun climbed the woman. Climbed the woman. Soon, he knew, it would be in her face, shining. 
The bed was in a was in a perfect position so that the sun would spend the majority of its day creating reds, pinks, and oranges beneath the lids of the woman's ever-closed eyes. He leaned over the woman's hospital bed, listened to her even breath, wondering if she was even capable of discomfort, and then he kissed her forehead. Goodbye, mother, he said. Be well. Nate's face. <laughs> I have I have so many questions, and I don't think any of them can be answered here without spoiling the book. Um, but, like, one, I just love the way that's written. I love the way that there's there's a sense of anxiety behind it all. That's the word I was looking for. It's anxiety. Um, like, you know something's off. You just don't know what yet. Um, in that first, in that, what would be the first impression if it was a chronological narrative. But then also just the way, like, the juxtaposition of the way the woman is referred to as his mother, but he always, or like what the limited third person narrator is giving to him and like keeps calling her the woman. It's like, mm-hmm. who is this person? What is this? <laughs> so. It's just such a sense of disconnect that you get right away. Yeah. Without like, and then it, when you realize that it's the mom, it's even worse. Cause you're like, Oh, but there's probably a story there. I don't know if I want to know what it is, but there's absolutely a story there. I think you, this is such like noir is the first thing that comes to mind. Like when I first started reading the book, the first couple of pages, um, it just it reads you get noir first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But there's so many different elements to it, too. There is a mystery there. There is action there. There is terrible things happening there and it's uh, i think to your point about like the cross genre stuff it's not just a noir story it mm-hmm. is obviously like that overtone like i'm I, obviously this is set in 2032 but i'm just like picturing like people dress like they're in the 30s and like a bar being like operate like agent toolbox or whatever but it's <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> it's codename toolbox <laughs> codename toolbox yes i appreciate that on multiple levels because my uh my brother's a helicopter pilot and his call sign is DeWalt. Um, <laughs> nice. Power tool company. I love it. Um, Cause he is, I love him, but he's a tool. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, the, that's the other thing about it is that it's like non-chronological narratives are, they can be very divisive, but when they're done well, they're done. They're phenomenal. And part of the way you achieve that is by getting them is getting the reader dislocated, but then also understanding it's like, they never know which way to jump next. And that mm-hmm. is what causes the anxiety and the disconnect and the idea of like something can happen. It, it's just multiple ways down the line. Because the other thing about that is that it it demonstrates that consequences from actions that you have done many, many years in the past can now come back and bite you several like long after you've forgotten what you did that led to that consequence yeah um, and i love that i love being able to explore that so thank you for doing it oh um, yeah no no problem and what i like uh, in, in, in crafting markline's narrative is presenting him in the sort of the front half of the book as a fully you know because he's in 20 like 2032 and 2036 are like the competing mainline narratives and you with markline you get you get a character who you're you you're just it's all bad all the time 
from those perspectives. And then it starts dripping into 2019 and, and a little bit of the years beyond. And you get, well, why is it all bad all the time? I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I am so curious because we've been talking about like the different timelines and stuff and things jumping around. How was it in terms of pit, like getting the editing for this, not just necessarily you going back and forth and making sure that everything was chronological because to you, you'd written a story. Ever You were like, yeah, it all makes sense. When you were pitching this to Anxiety or whoever else and when you were trying to explain it to an editor, how was how would that go? It actually went really, really well. Like for me writing it, part of the, the thing that, you know, I said before, like it's hard for me to, to, to really keep going unless I have something that's like keeping me entertained and interested in what I'm doing. And part of the thing that kept me interested in writing Breakneck, and it, I actually wrote it, but only, it only took me five and a half months to write the first draft of the book. And the thing I wanted to do was write it. I wanted, this is my first nonlinear thing, like at that point. It was my third novel I'd written. The first two I kind of shelved and I was like, I want to write a nonlinear novel and I want it to be all these other things. I cannot write it linear, like I cannot write it in order and mix it up. I have to write it non-linearly. And mm-hmm. then within that, the subsections of the years can't be written linearly either. They have to be written non-linear and mixed up. And then just keeping it all together in my head became the challenge of writing the book, which then once I got the, the first draft done and I did a couple more passes on it, the next step was then going read all the 2036 chapters in order as they appear. You know what I mean? And so making sure that as you go through 2036, the little things are all lining up. But if you go through 2028, the little things are all lining up. And so I did basically a year pass. And then I took it even deeper and did, and since the book is sort of segmented off by area, I know if I'm talking about a certain location, I'm with a certain character. So then I did a character pass through the mm. through the whole book and making sure that the character year by year was maintaining things. And actually, I was doing the final edit of this thing of like going back and forth with Cody from Anxiety Press when I noticed um, one of my characters makes a huge deal about not being into coffee in like twenty whatever twenty twenty eight, and then you know towards the beginning of the book he's pouring himself a cup of coffee and I'm like. Okay, it caught it like at that moment. Was like, okay, no, no one else will notice this, but, but, but for continuity's sake, we have to change this. Like, I can't explain to you. He just cannot be having a cup of coffee in this moment. <laughs> I love that. That is, it's it's That's so nitpicky, great. but it's so perfect. But it's nitpicky, yeah. like it's personal nitpicky. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's it's the best kind. It's like. I don't care that no one else is going to notice this. I will notice it. I will bother me forever. (laughs) Yeah. So it it actually was pretty painless going back and forth and and doing stuff because with Cody and with Anxiety Press, like they're, they like the noir stuff and they like the horror stuff and they like the experimental stuff. So they were just, you know, the first, when I got the acceptance from it, it was just like, this is really a sharp bit of writing. I would like to do this. Is it still available? So like right from the jump, he got what I was doing and what I was aiming at. So. So it sounds I, like it sounds yeah. like with anxiety press you had a uh, a lack of anxiety. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris, um, what were you gonna say? <laughs> I was gonna say I haven't heard like we've we had an interview with Jack Moody who had nothing mm-hmm. but good things to say. I um I have a story out with anxiety press and it was 
very funny. I put out a call on Twitter and was like, does anyone know anywhere that takes like really long stories? And I don't know, someone mess- someone commented and said, try Cody. Mm-hmm. He liked it. And I was just like, hey, <laughs> do you want this? And he was like, it was up three days later. I was like, thanks, hey, man. There you cool. go. <laughs> like, it seems just like, and I keep seeing all this like awesome cover art and all this like really cool shit just coming out down the pipeline. Uh, I'm excited to see what they do with that Trevor Project anthology. And oh, yeah, I think... I really like what they're doing and how he's supporting thing and how he's supporting projects like this. It feels like a press where you could go to with this kind of like, so narratively it's yeah. like five different timelines and there's a guy whose code name is three and the code name in Roman letters yes. and a guy it's opera and it's code name toolbox. And I just need you to go with this. And I'll just be like, no questions. Just here. <laughs> you, son, you son of a bitch. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> my, my absolute favorite thing about, um, about Chad, Chad Wayne's right. The third's nickname or code name in the book is it legitimately is never explained how it's pronounced until like page 275 (laughs) when someone actually says how it's supposed to be pronounced just i i I. (laughs) not gonna lie when i first started the story i got um like the first like couple pages with him right i was thinking uh what's the guy um the, the batman villain who carves the kills in tallies on his chest. Oh, that I don't recall. It was it was Victor Zaz. His name is Victor Zaz. He's kind of like a side piece, but uh, or like a side character usually in um the movies and <laughs> the, the in the side piece just got me like he's 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 someone's he's someone's second boyfriend. Yeah, you know it's fine. He's Harley's side chick, side boy. Um, but <laughs> no, so he carves a tally mark on himself for every time he kills somebody, but he's leaving us like one space for Batman when he kills Batman. That's like his entire origin, right? It's stupid. But long story of a reference point was that I saw that and that was my initial thought was like, I wonder if these are tally marks. Then was like, probably not. Let's just keep going. (laughs) I was glad that it wasn't explained right away. It was such like a like I like that I had that moment of being like, I wonder if this is a Zaz reference or something <laughs> like that. Well, and that's the thing where I like what I really like about, you know, as we were talking about before, where you know, you read stuff where they just kind of throw you in the deep end and it's not going to be explained right away, is you you as a reader, you get fun, fun moments of confusion where your mind's making connections that are either real or imagined. And one of the things I really enjoy about reading and about writing is um you know and i think a lot of writers think like oh i want to have a conversation with my reader and i want them to really understand it's like to me you're not having a conversation with the author you're having a conversation with the piece of writing and your interpretation of the piece of writing and if it's and 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 if it's and if the author is putting you know when you start seeing the author too much there right like like the author pops his head on goes hey just so you know you know what i mean like it (laughs) It, it, it takes me out of that conversation I'm having with the, the art, I guess. Yeah. yeah. There's um, Art and Scholasticism uh, by uh, Jacques Maritains. Uh, it's, uh, it's a collection of essays, but it looks at different views. It, it looks at the scholastic school of philosophy and its view of artwork. And that's actually part of it is the idea of like the, the work of art has to stand on its own. It has to be able to be determined whether or not it's good, bad, ugly, fair to middling on its own. And it doesn't – it can't be 
and I may be mis I may be misinterpreting this because I've it's been a year it's been a while since I've read it, but like it can't be something that's interpreted like in the light of the author's life or that's context or whatnot. It's like is the is the work of art is the story the painting the statue whatever is it good on its own? Yeah, and that I I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at where it's like you're not talking with the author. This is not no. like yeah, it's it's a matter of like you are engaging the piece that they have created and. Everything about the author is separate aside from yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And I love like, it. I, I like love we that. talk about DeLillo, like been one of my favorite authors since I first got shoved white noise in a in a literature class in like 2004, 2005. I literally did not know what that dude looked like until like three years ago, you know? Like mm -hmm. yeah. just... it's and he's just so yeah, like it's it's wild. But um I think that there are people who can get away and there are moments like Nate was talking about with the satire where you can get away with a nudge, nudge, yeah. wink, wink, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And there are definitely genres that lend themselves to handholding, yep. right? But it's to the same thing that you were talking about in terms of picking what you think is dark fiction is not limited to like a shelf, right? I read, so like I will have moments where I'll listen to an audiobook, I'll buy a book, whatever, and it'll be like, buyers also liked this book and it's something where it's like it's YA or mm -hmm. it's uh and I not to diss on YA but like it's the YA YA right yeah. or it's this thing is scary and it's like it's not dull and it's like it's not really a mystery it's not I have no issues at all like I know how this is going to end and everyone's going to be just fucking fine <laughs> yeah. right like that's and I just read, you know, like razor blade tears. Like I don't like that's not <laughs> not the same vibe that we're yeah, doing. And you're, uh, you're not alike. <laughs> yeah, and I think that there are people who really do enjoy reading those books that do kind of spoon feed you information or don't mm -hmm. make it or like it's a twist or it's a mystery with a lot of air quotes and it's fine for them, yeah. right? And like there's not like no disrespect to that, but I think that if I think that there is a different level of I want my readers to think about this just a little bit more. I want them to be confused and I want them to be uncomfortable for a second, not knowing. Yes. And I think that uncomfortability is something that people don't, they shy, that people can shy away from. Yeah. I don't want to make yeah. a generalization, but I think it's that lack of information, that lack of comfort is something that I think more writers have to push for of being like i promise this is okay people I, yeah, can take it yeah i i promise everyone will be fine at the end of the day <laughs> and and that's the other thing about like when you start recalibrating your version of success or you start recalibrating sort of what you're going to hang your hat on and feel good about and and what kind of writing careers such as they are these days um there's a lot of freedom in that and i think once you once you do that it opens you up to writing the way you want to write ultimately and saying, you know what, if I've amused myself at the end of the day, I'm happy. If someone else wants to publish it, I'm grateful. And then you move on, you know, to the, to the next thing. And, and part of that is, yeah, letting people like for me, I like letting people sit in a little bit of uncomfortability. I like, I like um, one of the, the things I really like doing, especially in a book like breakneck is, you know, and uh, awful people, which is going to be coming out is, giving people something to laugh about. And then like two pages later being like, why were you laughing? That was terrible. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, that's like a... the Calvin and Hobbes joke. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, uh, but yeah, or why are you laughing? Horse. This was terrible. 
Why? Why are you? Why are? Why are you cheering me? I'm wrong. I'm uh, wrong. Yeah, this is all wrong right now. <laughs> but doing it with humor and stuff like that—that that, that's what makes me happy. You know, like yeah. The uh, oh gosh, what was it? The like the the uncomfortability or like the the lack of knowledge about things. The thing that I love that actually induces that and kind of accident. I think I think they do it accidentally. Um is uh novels in translation so something that's like coming from a different language and a different culture um because there are things that are going to be in there that are implied or like are already common knowledge to uh the readers who would have normally picked that up like oh yeah yeah one of the one of the murder mysteries that i just read maybe about a few months ago um was called the hunjin murders uh and i cannot pronounce the guy who did it uh i think it's uh saishi uh he's a jap is a japanese author uh and at one point in the story uh he makes multiple references to a koto a, a koto which is a stringed instrument i had no idea what this thing looked like but yeah. that is common knowledge to any uh, any readers from Japan who would have been tra- who would have been familiar with traditional instrumentation, and I'm just kind of like I love that I had to feel a little bit out of place in order to kind of get that and to kind of like imagine what this was like, and then like in some ways, yeah, like there was some mis- there was some like stuff that was spoon fed because it's like it's a mystery they have to explain things at the end, yeah. um, and but I, I loved like the disconnect. I loved like feeling a little bit uneasy about like i don't know if i'm thinking about this right i don't know if i i'm seeing things correctly um i just finished um this thing between us uh by gus moreno and i listened to it as an audiobook and it has spanish in it that (laughs) on the like when i was when you're reading a book that's like you know in print like if the printed version you can like translate it you can look it up you can do whatever but i was listening to an audiobook so there are just like sentences that i just had to roll with and just like go with the context of it and be like i don't know i don't know if i should be spooked out or not or i don't know if like whatever and but i don't think i necessarily lost too much of the story Mm -hmm. Right. Because you you can yeah. kind of pick up from context of what they're talking about and clues and stuff. But also, I feel like that's almost it's a different way of experiencing the story of being like, I am confused. The yes. narrator is confused. Everyone is confused. And it's it's interesting to have those moments every once in a while. Sorry, Nate, I did cut you off. Earlier. No, that was that was fine. That was exactly what I that was. That was. I was happy to hear that it was almost more of just kind of like, I was thinking like, doesn't that almost give like a little bit of a, that's kind of a statement on just reality. It's like, they're confused. The narrator's confused. We're all confused. And it's like, we're all just kind of trying to make this up as we go along, aren't we? And some, in some cases, like with some stories, that's just the way it feels because that's just the truth of the matter. It's that we're, no one has a, the the writer might have a grand plan at some point. Um, particularly if they're like one who doesn't plot, like, um, <laughs> But no, it's it's a, it's a genuine thing. Like I'm I'm hitting this struggle right now where it's like I had a vague idea of like how it was supposed to start and how it ended, or a vague idea of how it ended. And now it's kind of like I'm stuck in the middle. That I'm like, these people are far more complex than I thought. And I'm like, I yes. just I I like I don't want them to get away from me. But I'm also just kind of like I need you to go down your own path and then come back and tell me what you found. And wow, this is kind of existential. Um. I feel like they're my children. Uh, I still like... have um, from a couple years back the original plot map 
<laughs> I say that term very loosely. That's hilarious. <laughs> of what this book was. And it was a mountain. And then this character is connected to that character. I know it's blurry. And then that this thing is some comes into thing. And then these two don't like each other. Also, by the way, I thought for sure that there was going to be an like a very bitter enemy relationship between two characters. And then about... 10 pages ago realized oh no no they're just they're friends but they keep it a secret for reasons <laughs> for yeah, cool. reasons for reasons and i'm like cool but i just i i've held on to this because for me it's funny and also just like if anyone needs a visual aid for how my brain works <laughs> that's awesome. this is going to become a book <laughs> i think i think well, the good news is you can always retcon like the first half of your book right like yeah <laughs> You like, like you can write a thing and it's fine. And then when you discover halfway through that, like someone does something that completely changes something, you can go back and just retcon it in and be like, now I will set a breadcrumb here because it will, <laughs> I, because it will become relevant. We just we just keep plugging along. Um, and I think it's kind of funny for me when I hear people talk about how much they outline things. Because to me, I'm like, my book's a mystery to me. I don't understand when you like, if you have all the answers and then you're able to hide all the answers versus me where like my process is, I don't have all the answers. And then I find out at the same time, the reader finds out. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that feels like a... <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing with me. And I, and I have nothing to back this, this theory up, but there's, you know, you hear the phrase like, uh, I hate writing. I love having had written. And to me, it's always the exact opposite. I hate having had written like, I love writing and when I can't do it or, and it's not coming naturally, it, it sucks. And I, and I don't like it. I have fun when I I'm writing and I have fun when I'm sort of plotting it all out or plotting it all as, as I'm, I'm creating it. And I feel like for some people, like the fun really isn't just plotting, you know, plotting in advance. Like that seems to be the thing they enjoy the most about the writing process. So maybe there's the difference there. <laughs> But I could yeah. also see that as being like, I wrote this massive outline and now I'm finally seeing like the story come together and I'm starting to see this. And then also like if you started off that way, right, and you know what the twist is going to be and then yeah. getting to that twist would be so satisfying and knowing that readers are going to find that would be so satisfying. And it's just, I, it's one of the great things about writing and doing what we do, right? It's just like, there's so many ways to approach it. There's mm -hmm. so many different styles and genres and methods and we all end up in the same weird place where we're like i just want to see someone get their head cut off like yeah. hey <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah i i mean like it, and that's part of the fun thing about it too is that it's like particularly when you don't plot or like even if you do plot like seeing how the characters develop like far beyond anything you could have planned and it's like they've developed into such complex human beings that have like very intricate ties and relationships to one another and it's really kind of cool and really kind of awesome to see like how imaginations play out between different people particularly like when you learn their process and yeah. you learn like how these things came about in the first place um like oh gosh like there are some there are some characters where you you hear about them and then you hear like you read the story and then you realize where they came from mm -hmm. and you're even more amazed it's like how did you get that from this yeah um oh gosh like yeah i mm, there's so I many think, speaking of like inspiration and stuff um kind of how did the 
you mentioned that you just like kind of had the story start in 2032. Were there any like big inspiration points or anything you saw that you were like, that I'm going to write a story involving that. Um, with this book, not, <laughs> not, not really. Uh, I knew I wanted to write something with Coolane in it, the Irish demigod. I didn't know how that was going to sort of manifest itself, but that was always going to be a part of it. And then I knew I wanted, um, I wanted the detective thing just because I've always really enjoyed the detective noirs. I, you know, I, all the way back to who framed Roger Rabbit for me, you know, like, Oh yeah. An this, underrated classic. Exactly. <laughs> so I wanted, I wanted something with that feel. So like, it was like, it was who framed Roger Rabbit. It was Chinatown. It was um, American werewolf in London. It was, um, and then, but I, but when I started writing it, like I didn't listen, I didn't watch or consume any noir stuff while I was writing, except I listened to the audio book of The Postman Always Rings twice, a couple of times, just because I, I love that. I love that sort of, I love that book. And it has the it's very California noir. And what I wanted, deeply wanted was a representation of a true noir set in a Midwestern city because Midwestern literature seems to be sort of bifurcated uh, between the tributaries of like, aw shucks, isn't this life on the farm nice and peaceful? Or, oh geez, I just, uh, just got dropped into a Midwestern city and now I have to deal with all these yokels who think this farmland is so beautiful. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, it's rom-com territory. It's the yeah. hallmark. I'm coming home for Christmas and oh wait, this man just bought a pie shop and so I'm going to give up my big city life to come back to Illinois. Like that's Exactly. Like, like so the inspiration was really just like god damn it, Madison deserves its Chinatown. <laughs> I can dig it. I can we dig it. We actually just had this conversation not that long ago about how there aren't that many Midwestern crime thriller noir stories. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, we're we're probably going to start up the next uh, next issue of Hoosier Noir soon. So if anyone wants to uh, yes! try to throw in a, a, a crime story set in Indiana, by all means, hit me up. Um, uh, Hoosier Noir at gmail.com. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a rare. Like, I, I hadn't realized it until I started reading a lot of stories about the South. But it's like the Midwest has like this bucolic reputation, which to some degree we've earned. And to another degree, it's like, dude no absolutely not like it's it could be brutal here man people can be mean yes. even if they don't like even if you don't realize it and it's cold and it's desolate and there's nothing out here and there's plenty of spaces to hide bodies and probably more of more than a few have been used twice um yeah. there and, was uh sorry go for it no i was i was gonna say it's like there there's one there's one writer that i will admit has like kind of didn't shatter the paradigm but like altered it a little bit um his third novel was the one that I read first, but his first novel, um, it's a guy named Leif Anger, L-E-L-E-I-F-E-N-G-E-R. Uh, he's from Minnesota, but his first novel was called Peace Like a River. Uh, mm -hmm. And it starts off, it starts off again, like kind of bucolic on the farm, but then later involves things like one brother, like one brother becomes an outlaw because he kills two men in front of the narrator. Mm -hmm. was like a small child at the time. And it's like this whole like family experience of like 
are we going to go help him? Like, what are we going to do? Like, what's this whole thing? And it's like, it's actually like a really, it's a wide ranging story, but it's a really, really good novel. But it, it doesn't like settle into like, oh, everything's bucolic and easy. And like, look at all these random yokels who are just like living on the land. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that that's like the one outlier. But by mm-hmm. and large, I agree with you. It's that's that's kind of how it falls into. Um, yeah. Um, the, this thing between us actually uh, takes place in Chicago and Colorado. Nice. I took me. It doesn't actually say it was in Chicago for like <laughs> a really long time, and then he was just like, "Oh," and then I like left Chicago, and I was like, "Cool, cool, 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 cool." Um, so like Midwest adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> Chicago's its own thing. Chicago um, definitely is its own thing. <laughs> yep, it is its own. It's its own unique and semi-glorious creature i think we're gonna have to wrap up here soon but scott this has been absolutely fantastic is there anything awesome yeah we're glad you had a good time uh is there is there anything that you want the listeners to know about breakneck or about like the way you write or is there anything like you really are passionate about that you want people to know about your work before uh before we sign off um you know i guess just if it's if a slightly absurd highly satirical and sardonic midwestern uh horror noir sounds like something you would dig check it out um and as far as like i just like yeah i guess trust your process as always if you're a writer man just just trust your process trust your voice if you think it if you think it's cool man then it's it's probably cool I can dig it. I can Someone dig else it. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much again. Uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. Everyone go check out Breakneck uh, and find the new books as they come out. Um, and yeah, just thanks again for, for coming on. And we had a m- massive book nerd talk about this. <laughs> I mean, I'm so happy about it. I love well, it. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And to everyone listening, please like, comment, subscribe, share us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, tell your friends about us. Follow Scott on uh, Twitter at S Mitchell May. Uh, and please always remember to look beneath the surface. Thank you, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye.